This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is uh, Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah uh, School of Medicine. Today we're going to talk about water safety and drowning. Very common uh, problem in the backcountry and a big deal with uh, backcountry medicine. Uh, one only needs to look at the drowning statistics to rethink safety when in and around water. Drowning is the third leading cause of unintentional deaths worldwide. Even with swim and safety classes available, in many countries, large numbers of people drown every year. There were an estimated 360,000 uh, people who drowned worldwide in 2019. This means that at least one person died from drowning every one and a half minutes. Sadly, these estimates may be significantly underestimated. There's some data that suggests that as many as one million people die annually from drowning. This uh, is more than two victims per minute. It is a calamity of young people. It is one of the top five causes of death for people aged 1 to 14 in 48 out of 85 countries. Natural water is where most people drown. Uh, up to 40% of drowning deaths happen. Swimming pools account for 20% of drowning deaths, and about 10% or 11% occur in bathtubs, and that's kids. So when you think of drowning, you have to think of, of children and young people. Alcohol play a major risk in uh, drowning deaths, uh, with males at least twice the mortality of females due to rescue behavior and drinking alcohol before swimming and boating. This is the same group of people, uh, male adolescents, that get injured skiing, that are injured in car accidents. And uh, it has a lot to do with the uh, new theories about the frontal lobe. Be careful of these people in the backcountry. Uh, water safety and water injury and drowning is a common uh, issue. Uh, there is a correlation between the victim's age uh, as to where the drowning occurred. For children aged to f- up to four and under, home swimming pools, bathtubs, and buckets pose the greatest risk. Over half of the fatal and non-fatal drownings in adolescents occur in natural water, such as lakes, rivers, and oceans, where they recreate. Eighty percent of people who die from drownings, we said, are male, with drug and alcohol being a, a, the big uh, issue. Trauma from water recreation is uh, secondary to dives, falls, and horseplay. And in on river trips, uh, failure to wear uh, a life jacket or the personal flotation device it constitutes about a staggering 88% of drowning deaths. And think of the number of people we could save if we get people to wear their life jackets. One of the problems with uh, these uh, drowning incidences is that the definitions are not clear. In the general public, it may not be a big deal, but as uh, medical people, are, uh, if you're versed in medicine, uh, using the proper techniques has ramifications on how you will treat the victim. And over the years, different terms have been used to describe and define the types of accidental drownings. But this has led to confusion associated with these definitions. So to eliminate the confusion, at least try to in 2015, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, which is called i recommended new definitions, and these are the ones being followed now, uh, and these should be memorized. Some terms such as near drowning, wet drowning, and dry drowning have been eliminated, and those were very common in the vernacular, but they're gone, so we don't use near drowning, wet drowning, or dry drowning anymore at all. 
it is critical to have a solid understanding of these uh, new terms. So uh, the, the basic ones that are used are drowning. And this is defined as a process that results in respiratory impairment from submersion uh, or immersion in the liquid medium, thus causing death, morbidity, or no morbidity at all. So drowning is not synonymous with death as it has been in the past. It is just a process th uh, that leads to impairment that can cause death, morbidity, or no morbidity at all. Immersion means to be covered in water. Partial immersion means to be partially covered in water. The drowning process can be thought as a continuum from the onset of the airway being immersed to when the patient dies. The drowning process can be disrupted at any point by rescue and or resuscitation. The length of time within the drowning process correlates to the amount of organ damage and morbidities that are seen. The last new term defined is called shallow water blackout. Uh, shallow water blackout is a special cause of drowning that occurs in people who hyperventilate before going underwater to raise their oxygen level in an effort to stay underwater longer. In reality, rather than raising their oxygen level, which is already high, they reduce their partial pressure of carbon dioxide. It is the CO2 that stimulates the respiratory centers in the brain to breathe. Thus, the victim doesn't realize they need to surface to get air. The victim will use up oxygen, which will cause hypoxemia and unconsciousness and possibly uh, morbidity and death. So drowning uh, targets the pulmonary system. It is the uh, one that needs to be looked at first. During the drowning process, victims become panicked, which causes an increase in respiratory rate. At some point, victims are thrust underwater and have to try to hold their breath. This lowers oxygen levels while increasing CO2 levels in the blood. As the victim struggles to stay above water, they use oxygen. With the rise of the PaCO2 and the fall of the PaO2, the medulla in the brain is stimulated, causing involuntary respirations. Victims inhale water into their lungs, causing pulmonary damage. They become very hypoxemic, which will then cause secondary organ damage. The heart can become ischemic, and neurologic injury can result. And if you've ever had this experience, it's one of the the strange phenomenons to go underwater and all of a sudden begin to breathe because the medulla has stimulated that. As far as the heart goes, arrhythmias are a common EKG uh, finding. But um, they are usually not caused by electrolyte disturbances uh, like high calcium or magnesium, sodium, as the volume aspirated water is rarely enough to determine the plasma electrolytes. Arrhythmias are typically secondary severe hypoxemia that causes an ischemia in the cardiac conduction system. In addition, hypoxia can cause respiratory acidosis, which contributes to cardiac arrhythmia by increasing early and delayed depolarization of the nerve fibers. Interestingly, though, some studies have shown that arrhythmia, in this case the prolonged QT syndrome, can cause patients to die. This highlights the importance of monitoring patients with medical conditions mainly seizure disorders and cardiac complications when swimming. Along with arrhythmias, hypoxia uh, can also cause a decrease in the cardiac output. 
But hypoxia uh, causes injury and inflammation in the brain that can lead to cerebral edema and increased intracranial pressure. Uh, this process can occur after a relatively short period of hypoxia, which is why oxygenation is so important in the management of submersion injury. In fact, it is the most important thing. After resuscitating patients, it's important to monitor them for further neurologic deterioration as reperfusion injury usually uh, well, can occur, although uh, just needs to be looked at. Drowning itself is quick and silent, although it may be preceded by stress, which is more visible. Generally, in the early stages of drowning, very little water enters the lung. A small amount of water uh, enters the trachea and causes a muscle spasm that seals the airway and prevents passage of both air and water until unconsciousness occurs. This means a person drowning is unable to shout or call for help or seek attention as they cannot get enough air. The instinctive drowning response is the final set of uh, autonomic reactions in the 20 to second, seconds before uh, sinking underwater. To the untrained eye, it can look similar to calm or safe behavior. Persons trained in rescue learn to recognize drowning people by watching for these movements. Rescue involves bringing the victim's mouth and nose above the water surface. And the sooner that it's done, the better. Um, a drowning person may actually grab the rescuer, uh, submerging the rescuer in the process. Thus, tr uh, it is advised that the rescuer approach with a buoyant object or from behind, twisting the victim around the neck to restrict movement. If the rescuer does get pushed underwater, they should dive downwards to escape the victim. The priority is then to transport the victim to the water's edge in preparation for removal from the water. The victim is turned onto their back with a secure grip uh, that uh, tows them from behind. If the person is cooperative, they may be towed in a similar fashion uh, at the armpits. If the person is unconscious, they may be pulled in a similar way, held at the chin and cheeks, ensuring that the mouth and nose are well above the water. Since drowning is mainly an oxygenation problem, rescue breath should be started immediately. You do not need to start chest compressions get air into the lungs. And this is a big mistake in rescuers. Get air into the lungs, and the rescue best become important. The European Resuscitation Council recommends that five rescue breaths be initiated instead of two breaths when starting CPR. Most patients with respiratory arrest will respond after the first few rescue breaths. Chest compressions are uh, ineffective without a sturdy uh, surface under the patient and should be avoided until the patient is on land. Some people try to do it in the water, and it just does not work. There are no drainage procedures for clearing the airway, and the Heimlich maneuver is no longer recommended in submersion injury. On the exam, patients will have several signs and symptoms that correlate to the underlying pulmonary pathologies. The patient will be short of breath with dyspnea as the lung compliance drops. Patients will complain of air hunger due to the reduction of both ventilation and perfusion. Irritant receptors in the airway will be stimulated by the aspirated water, and that will cause the patient uh, to cough. In any uh, drowning scenario, the pulmonary system is the first system to be treated. However, it is always important to consider the possible mechanism of injury in the primary assessment. Cliff diving has a fairly obvious risk for head and neck, while submersion in a river is less so. Current protocols for wilderness spine immobilization are very similar to the standard criteria, 
uh, if a patient has an altered mental status, such as they're intoxicated, which is common on river trips, has neurologic deficits or a thoracic uh, distracting injury, they should be immobilized. If, the, if there is a spinal pain, vertebral tenderness, or if the patient has a re- reduced spinal range of motion, they should be immobilized. Uh, patients with penetrating injuries to the spine uh, should not be uh, immobilized, however, which is typical uh, uh, management. Uh, there is a risk of bacterial and fungal infections in uh, aspirated water, and given that these infections have a high mortality rate, there is no evidence that antibiotic prophylact- prophylactic therapy is uh, useful. Um, uh, while drowning in cold water can be protective, it is essential to note that hypothermia has to occur at the time of submersion. Most patients will be hypothermic from prolonged exposure to the water, that's conductive heat loss, and are already dead from the drowning process. As opposed to dying from the drowning process, the patient can also die from immersion syndrome, suffering cardiac arrest from the shock of cold water. In very cold or freezing water, reflex reactions can be lethal, killing up to 70% of people within 15 to 30 minutes. Initially, victims first give rise to cold shock, a combination of uncontrolled gasping and massively increased blood pressure with possible cardiac arrest, followed by the rapid loss control of bodily functions needed for swimming and uh, for uh, gripping. So there's always going to be a question of when should you evacuate someone that's had a submersion kind of event, uh, and um, anybody really should be evacuated. However, sometimes finishing the river trip or floating the rest of the river or maybe the, the best way to do it. For example, if there's a drowning victim during a, a, a long rafting trip, it might be quicker to raft the rest of the trip uh, rather than try and get them out by helicopter or hiking them out, in which case monitoring the patient for complications uh, really becomes quite uh, essential. In any backcountry uh, river trip, a stethoscope, portable pox emitters, uh, uh, in the medical kit, enhance the ability to assess a patient in the backcountry. Without these tools, it's much harder to decide to evacuate or to stay. This decision has enormous impacts. Either way, uh, can put the rest of the group at risk. Patients that are asymptomatic after a submersion episode should be reevaluated after four, uh, five or six hours. If the patient has a regular exam with no symptoms, such as cough, normal breath sounds, normal vital signs, they often can stay in the wilderness. If there are any respiratory complaints or findings on the exam, they should be evacuated. Other factors that warrant evacuation include loss of consciousness, dyspnea, persistent cough, air hunger, uh, abnormal pulmonary exam, or hypoxemia on the uh, pulse oximeter. But in the end, it's prevention is the most important thing more than any other action one can take uh, to prevent uh, submersion injury. The best way to do this is to avoid alcohol while participating uh, in the water activities. If you're on a river trip, you don't drink during the day, you drink at night. Everyone on a boat should always wear personal flotation devices uh, that are um, that are approved. Uh, if you go water skiing and wear a water vest, for example, that will not work on a river trip. Why, uh, the one thing that has to be remembered that in rapid, there's a lot of air. As water threshes around, air is drawn in, and so the the buoyancy effect of water is lost. 
So uh, you need to wear a, a buoyant device that will grab you and not come off and lift you as high as possible while in a rapid. So when looking for a, a good life jacket uh, to wear, uh, it has to uh, float the patient's head above the water. I mean, that sounds silly, but it's something that you really need to look at. And uh, some life jackets will float 27 pounds and others will go down to 18 pounds you might want to make sure that yours has the highest flotation uh, that is possible. Um, camp far enough away from water so that people, especially kids, do not actually wander into the water. Keep uh, people away from the water uh, at night and uh, also away from the rafts where they can slip and fall. Uh, it's really, though, that it's young children that need to be super, supervised around any uh, uh, water, whether you're on a river trip or whether you're uh, swimming. But it's just a one-minute phone call or other distraction is all it takes for a child to become submerged in a bucket or in a pool or in a, in a bathtub. T uh, toddlers are drowned in toilets, and toddlers are drowned in bathtubs when left alone uh, with older siblings to watch them. Patients with seizure disorders should always be supervised when swimming and should probably use a shower stall, uh, not a bathtub. Um, so remember that drowning is a calamity of young people. Prevention is uh, a lot more satisfying than treatment. If there is uh, a, an incident, remember the target or organ is the lungs. Compressing the chest is, while well, maybe important, five rescue breaths are what are instantly important, and patients may recover uh, just with those. Don't use Heimlich maneuver or other ways to evacuate water from the lungs. Make sure that personal flotation devices are adequate and won't slip off. There are many stories where people fall into rapids, and if they're smaller and they put on a larger life jacket, they will slip off and um, come off, and people will drown uh, that way. Um, be careful of uh, cold water and high water if you're on river trips. Cold water uh, makes swimming and activities much more uh, difficult to get out of the water. And high water is so fast that it's hard uh, to get out of that. Um, and certainly avoid rivers and other activities that are above your skill level. Uh, most people die in what they call a long swim, where they're just swept away. People will flip the raft or fall in, and people are unable to get to them. They may have a cardiac arrest. They may have trauma. But it's those people that are in the water a long time. Anyway, this ends the uh, podcast on uh, drowning and water safety. And again, thank you for listening.